Well, I want to talk to you this morning about the most destructive force in humanity, and it's sin. And simply put, sin is uh, brokenness, or fallenness, or separation from God. And I want to speak this morning to people who really wrestle with sin. It's more destructive than any weapon or war or even death itself. There is nothing as dangerous and nothing that will damage your life more than sin. Now, I feel compelled to say at the very beginning that, at least here uh, at the jar, there's no room for judgmentalism or pride or self-righteousness. And I think it's worth reminding all of us here this morning that it's not our only goal to have perfect people to walk through the doors of the jar. That's not our goal. But our goal is to reach out to those who have flubbed up and messed up and screwed up in this thing called life. Now, we want to be the type of church that reaches out to the most out-of-control sinners in all of Delaware County. And I think if you look around right now, you'll notice that we've done pretty well. (laughs) I mean, we really have. We've done a good job of that. And our story this morning, we want to talk about a person who battled with sin. And it's David, the guy that we've been talking about all summer long. And if you've been in it, you've seen that he's been this this huge spiritual giant. And he did these amazing things for God. He's the only man in all of the Bible who was told that he was a man after God's own heart. So we're talking about the spiritual elite. But today we want to talk about a story in his life in which he sinned in a gigantic way. And we want to do this by looking at four crossroads that he comes to in this story that we'll be looking at. And then the choices that he chooses to make. Because these are four crossroads, folks, that every single one of you are going to come to at some point. And I will too. And three of them, David just blew on by. He just walked right on by what was in front of his face. And every time that he came to a crossroad and he took the wrong fork in the crossroad, it simply allowed things to get worse and worse and worse in his life. So I want us to look this morning at uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12, or 1 Samuel chapter 11 and 12, and we'll kind of make our way through this message. So in chapter 11 we read this. In the spring... At the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. 
One evening, David got up from his bed and he walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam and the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. Uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. And that's the beginning of our story. Now the first crossroads that uh, David comes to is that of a spiritual drift factor. He comes to this crossroads and he becomes uh, a person who spiritually drifts. And so that first crossroads that he comes to is a spiritual drift factor. And you may have missed this, but this actually begins in verse 1 when you just kind of read beyond that. But it's a very important kind of text. It says this. It says, The king's men and the whole army of Israel went off to war. But David remained in Jerusalem. Now this is quite a significant line, that the kings typically went off to war at a particular time of year. For instance, the Colts, every single year over the last few years, have always gone to some college kind of uh, setting to do their training camp. And every NFL team does that. They go away because they're getting ready for battle and war for the next uh, few months. And so uh, the Colts go to Anderson University. And so this text here just says that this was the time of year that battles would be fought. But this year, David decided that he wasn't going to do that. He said, I don't want to go. I don't need to go. They can go. And so if you're the king, the reality is you don't have to go because you're the king. But in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 20, the Israelites had in their position description these words. Let's read it together. We'll go out before us and fight our battles. That's the position description of King David. He is to go out and to fight the battles for the people. And for all of his life, David did that. You read all the stories that lead up to this, and every single time he goes out to the battle, he leads it. But not this time. And most scholars say that there is something that's very significant going on with David that the writer kind of cues us into. And we can kind of read between the lines and we can discover what that is. It was generally believed that David was around 50 years old when this section of his life transpires. And so, folks, he's not an old man, especially since I'm only 41 right now. He's not an old man, but he's not the golden boy anymore either. And women don't look at him quite the same way they used to. He's starting to use Rogaine a little bit to hide things. He told himself that maybe I just need to work out a little bit more. So he built a track all around the palace, you know, so he'd be physically fit. He didn't tell anybody, but he started putting Metamucil into his diet 
uh, a little bit. But what is it that David wanted? What is it that he really wants? He wants to feel young. He wants to feel alive. He wants to feel vibrant. He wants to feel vital. He was restless and he's lonely and he's bored. And so he decided he would just stay home. But apparently, he didn't ask God if that's what he should do. He just chose this on his own. And instead of going off with the rest, he just kind of drifts. Now, I want to just pause there for a moment because some of you are at this crossroads this morning. You're a little restless. You're a little bored. You're a little dangerous right now. Your motivation to obey and to serve God has gotten a little bit lower, and it just seems like it's getting lower and lower each day. And you don't know why, but you've just kind of started to drift just ever so much in your life. And I just want you to know this morning that if you're at that place, folks, you're at a dangerous point. And so I just want to ask you, will you take the time to go to God and open your heart to Him? Will you trust God enough that He cares enough and He knows enough that He really does have your best interest in heart if you'll turn to Him? Will you simply say to God this morning, God, I'm a little lonely. I'm a little hurt. Whatever it is. And I want to hold tightly to you. I'm going to trust you that there is a good season ahead in my life, even though I don't see it right now and I'm feeling the disappointment. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to ask you today, folks, to choose a crossroad that you don't drift but you drift back to God. You don't drift away. You drift toward. Well, David doesn't do that. He doesn't drift towards God. He drifts away. And because he's home, the writer tells us that uh, he gets up out of bed late one afternoon and he looks out over the palace and he's like, Whoa! She's bathing. And she is very beautiful. And then notice in verse 3 it says this, And David sent someone to find out about her. Now if you're taking notes right there, you might want to circle that word sent because that word sent, folks, is used tons of times in this scripture. And the reason that it is is because it's typically used by David. Mostly it refers to David trying to play God in the lives of the people that are around him. And so he sins here and he sins there. He does whatever he wants to to get what he wants. So it's at this point that he sends out to try to find some information about this woman. And he's drifted now from a temptation... And temptation isn't bad, folks. We all get tempted. I get tempted. But it drifts from a temptation to an action now. And he's making plans. By the way, sometimes uh, when people read this text, they'll say, well, didn't Bathsheba play a part of that? I mean, what's the deal with her bathing naked 
you know, out on uh, her roof. I mean, what's up with that? Well, this, the reality is, folks, that this scripture does not indict her at all. Most likely in the afternoon, what would happen is they would have these big barrels that would be filled with rain. And if you left that out, that as the day went on, it would heat up and then late in the afternoon, it would be at its warmest. And who wants to take a cold bath, right? And so she's simply taking a warm bath. And the reality is, all the men should be gone anyways, right? They should all be at work or they should be off at war. And so she wasn't doing anything wrong. But in the text, if you look at it, Bathsheba is just treated kind of as an object. There's no mention of how she feels. There's no mention of uh, what she says or what she thinks. She's just something to be used by David in this story. You see, when sin gets a hold of you folks, this is what happens. You begin to start using the people around you. When sin gets a hold of your life, you begin to start using the people around you. You begin to see them as objects rather than as children of the Most High God. And so David sends out for information, and then he starts to drift. And then we come to what is the second crossroad in our text this morning. And it's this, a specific temptation. So he drifts, but then he comes to a specific temptation. David is kind of given a spiritual warning light. He now has a specific temptation. There's a warning light in this text. It's in verse 3. It says this. The messenger comes and says, Isn't this Bathsheba the daughter of Iliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now you and I look at this and we're like, Where's the warning light? I don't see anything. It's just describing who they are. Well, it's very important. You see, in the Old Testament, folks, when they would write genealogies, they never included or rarely included spouses. They would never just go down that. they just list one person. But now all of a sudden, there is a spouse that's listed. And the servant has some guts to be able to do this. More than likely, he's trying to get into David's mind and he's saying, you know, hey, David, isn't this Bathsheba the daughter of Iliam. And David, isn't this Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David, I'm just telling you right now, this is someone's daughter. This is someone's wife. Be careful. And this is the crossroads that we all come to at some point in our lives. And there is this inner voice that is within us. Or we... Hear it from friends that are around us. And they're just saying, be careful. Think about it. This is a warning light that God gives to it. Did you realize that? God gives you warning lights many times before you ever sin. Now, we have uh, some of those in a quite concrete way in our culture today. Whenever you drive up to a traffic light, there are three distinct colors. Two of these colors are straightforward. Red means? I'm worried about you guys. You really worry me. I see you leave sometimes out of here from the celebration. And I realize you don't know what red means. You just got to do your own thing. Red means stop. For those of you that didn't know that important traffic information... That uh, is really important to know. Red 
means stop. And green means, ah, you're much good at green, you know. Not so good with red, but really, really good uh, with green. And then there is yellow. I didn't even ask you yet. You know, folks, I can do this up here all by myself. I know the answers. It's all like right here. Yellow. Yeah, yellow is the most interesting of the three colors. Because uh, it's very interesting to see that yellow means something different for different people. For example, for some people, when they're driving and they see yellow, they slam on the brakes and they try to stop what they're doing. Other people, when they see yellow, they push the what pedal? Gas! Yeah, the acceleration. It's just like, yellow means keep going. Well, God sends David a warning signal. He says, isn't this Bathsheba? Isn't this somebody's daughter? Isn't this somebody's wife? And typically, because David was so connected to God, he would see this thing like, oh, you're right, God. And he'd write a psalm about it. He'd say, oh, God, I'm so sorry. I'm so grateful that you showed me this temptation, but then you helped me not to fall into it. But he doesn't do that this time. Because David really doesn't want to think. Thinking is the last thing that David wants to do. He just hits the accelerator. He sees the yellow, but he hits the accelerator, and he just keeps on going. He just blows by the crossroad that hits his life. And again, I just want to pause because some of you folks are at this crossroads in your life. You're not just drifting, but there's a specific temptation that you're experiencing right now. And you have it in your mind, and perhaps you've even started acting out a little bit. And if you haven't, you're thinking about it. And maybe God just simply brought you here today to ask you, will you stop and think about the consequences before you make this action. Think about the consequences before you cross that line. You know, I was thinking about it this week, and I just thought to myself, what would happen if I mishandled sexuality in my own life? I thought about the consequences if I mishandled this area in my life. And so I just started thinking about it, and I wrote down a few things, and one of the things that came to me was that it would destroy my prayer life and my worship life with God. And it would create all kinds of guilty feelings and and feelings of regret. And it would damage the intimacy with the person that I most want to know how to love on this earth. And that's my wife, Jennifer. And if I mishandled this area of my life, it would destroy and damage the ministry that God has called me to. And it could pass on a legacy to my two girls that could simply destroy them to ever trust relationships again. 
And it could cause me to start hiding and masking, which is the one thing that I most want to avoid in my life, to try to have to hide. Folks, I know what kind of man I want to become, and I know what kind of man I don't want to become. And folks, I just want to challenge you this morning that whatever it is, the struggle that is in your life that you're struggling with, you know it right now. Even while we've been talking, some of you have been fidgeting around going, oh man, he's talking to me about whatever this area is. That you would take some time right now and you would go to God one-on-one and you would get real with him because no one else is going to tell you to get real except you. Your spouse isn't, your parents aren't, your pastor isn't, your small group leader's not. Only you and you alone can get right with that. It's up to you. Well, David just kind of blows past this, and he just keeps on going. David, this is somebody's wife. This is somebody's daughter. But he just blows right on by. If you would, look with me at verse 4. It says this. Then David sent messengers to get her. There's that word sent. It's used again. And this time, he's not sending for information, but he's actually sending for a woman. Now, up to this point, everything works out the way that David plans. He sees, he wants, he inquires. He sends for her. He sleeps with her. He sends her back home. But then something happens that's not quite in the script that David was writing. Look at what it says in verse number 5. It says, The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. There's that word again. It says to send. But this time, what do you notice? It's not David who's doing the sending. Who's doing the sending? Bathsheba. Now, he is no longer the sender, but David is the uh, sendee. He uh, hadn't counted on this. This probably wasn't a part of his plan. And this is the way it always is with sin. Sin sets in motion this spiritually destructive force that you cannot control no matter how much you think you can control it. Let me say that again. It spins into motion this desire of something that you want to control, that sin controls it for you. You can't control it. You can't. Sin always does that. It may be an external force, like a pregnancy or something else, or it may be an internal force, an integrity issue, a character issue, the loss of your innocence. But sin will set in this motion an issue of control. And this brings David to kind of this third crossroad in his life, and it's this, the moment after you've sinned. The first crossroad is a spiritual drift. The second one is a specific temptation. Then he falls into it, and now the question becomes, what do you do after you sin, the moment after you sin? How will David respond now that everything is spun out of control? Everything that he thought he had neatly and tightly kind of put all together in what his plan was. I mean, how do you respond? How do you respond when you sin and things get out of control and out of whack? How do you respond? 
You see, David at this point, he could drop to his knees and he could confess and he could ask for forgiveness and to confess. He could confess to God. He could confess to Bathsheba, to Uriah, to the people. He could repent and say, you know what, I messed up, but I'm ready to go right. And people, more than likely, folks, forgive folks. And they go on and they work at it and they go forward. And God always does. He could do that. Or he could go down a different road. And that's the road he chooses. You see, the problem is this, folks. After David has sinned, he thinks he's still in control. He thinks he's got the sin under control. Verse 6. So David, what's the next word? Sent. Sent the word to Joab. And again, what's the next word? Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab what? Sent him to David. Folks, David is out of control. Verse 7. When Uriah came to David, David asked him, Now look at the deception that comes here. The damage to his character. David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to the house and wash your feet. And you might say, That's weird. Why did he say that? Well, again, in Hebrew culture, folks, to wash your feet was not like what we would say, literally wash your feet. It was a metaphor for you to go and to sleep with your wife. You've been away in war for a long time. Go, go spend some time with your wife. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. How does David know that? He's sending spies to make sure that this happens. And the spies come back and say, hey, it ain't happening like you thought. And when David was told Uriah did not come home, he asked, haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in the tents, and my master Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go out to a house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as I live, I will not do such a thing. Now, what do you think David's thoughts were after this? Total confession, right? Oh, man, let me tell you, this is what's happened. No, he tries even harder to do a cover-up. Look at what verse 12 says. Then David said to him, stay here one more day and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him. And David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on the mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. Now you and you don't get this, but this is what I'm telling you. You know why this is so strange and ironic? Here's Uriah the Hittite. He's a foreigner, folks. He's not even a Jew. He's just fighting on behalf of the Jews. And he has more character than the king. He is more faithful to God drunk than David is sober. So how far 
will David go? As far as the text. Verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and he sent it with Uriah. He's sending his death warrant. In it he wrote, Put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. David is willing to commit murder if he has to. But it's not like this act of passion. It is cold. It is calculated. It is first degree planned out murder. And he's willing to pull in his military chief, Joab, as an accessory. And Joab agrees. He says, yeah, that's fine. Now notice something else. It says, if Joab is going to have Uriah killed, think about this. If you're taking one man out into a place where he's going to get killed, just loaded, he's got to send out more than one, doesn't he? He can't just send one. I mean, if you're fighting a battle and you just see one guy out there and there's a whole army, they're like, who cares? We want to go where there's a lot of people that we can kill and destroy. And so now he's got to be willing to sacrifice all kinds of innocent soldiers' lives in order to get this one man killed. He'll have to kill many. And Joab does that. He deliberately sacrifices large numbers of innocent soldiers. They're butchered simply because they want to get rid of this one man. And in verse 18 we read, Joab sent David a full report on the battle. He instructed the messenger, after you have given it to the king in a detailed report on the battle, if he flares in anger, say, and by the way, Uriah the Hittite said. Now why do you think he wanted to put that in? This is blackmail, folks. Okay, you might be upset that there were several of your men that died and the battle was very tough. But I just want you to remember, David, remember this little letter that you sent me? Well, it's been taken care of. It's the black man. And David's response is so cynical. Look at verse 22. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance to the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Not just one, some of them did. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. Isn't it ironic to you that the same mouth that worships songs to God, who gives praises, who writes 150 or so around that, of the Psalms, he writes all these things where he's worshiping God and praising Him. Out of that same mouth that worships and praises God, 
Out of the same mouth that said, you know what, no one else wants to take on Goliath? My God can. I'll turn to my God and we'll destroy Goliath. Out of the same mouth that was so filled with faith is now the mouth that is full of hypocrisy and deceit and total darkness. And David's left with the choice now. Either he can say, I've sinned and now I'm going to repent, or he can cover it up and he can sin more. Well, David commits to the cover-up strategy. And you see, folks, the reality is that sin is like a cancer. And there are some cancers that if you only have a certain radiation or you have a certain kind of chemotherapy, that's the only way you're going to remove it. And if you don't have that, it just spreads. And that's the way sin is. If you don't repent, if you don't say I'm wrong, if you don't say, God, please forgive me, all of a sudden it just spreads in other areas of your life. And the cover-up is on. And look at what it says in the first part of verse 27. When the time of mourning was over, David sent someone to bring her to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. David's done it! He was able to commit adultery, and he covered it up. He was able to commit murder, and he's covered it up. Everything seems fine. You see, David thought that the greatest danger was that someone would find out. But you and I know that that's not the greatest danger. The greatest danger for David was that no one would find out. Let me say that again. When you and I sin, you know what we're most afraid of? That somebody else is going to find out. But that shouldn't be our greatest fear. You know what the greatest fear is? Is that nobody would find out. And our hearts would just get harder and colder. And we would draw further and further away from God. Finally, chapter 11 comes to an end. And we're introduced to a final character. This character hasn't been mentioned The entire time. And in verse 27 it says this, But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the who? Lord. You see, David did a great job. He covered this up from every single person. But you see, there is one who sees everything, even the cover-ups. And he will call you into account. And he will not allow his justice to be just thrown about. He never gets fooled by cover-ups. And so David comes to kind of the final crossroad. And it's this one. The pronouncement of the judgment of God. The pronouncement of the judgment of God. In 2 Samuel 12, verse 1, we read, The Lord what? What's the word? Sent Nathan to David. There is that one word. It's the last time this word is used in this story. Because who sends it? The Lord. And you see, the reality is, folks, when the Lord sends, no one else needs to send. He's quite capable of sending on his own. 
And when he sins, that's it. I mean, David had been playing God with Bathsheba and Uriah and Joab and all of the Israelite army. But the day comes in which God finally is like, whoa, you're not God, I'm God. And since I'm God, I'm going to do it my way. And God's going to do the sending, and God sends Nathan to David. Now, think about this. I don't know about you, but this is like sometimes I have to confront people on sin. I don't get real excited about it, you know? And now God's telling Nathan, the prophet, to go and to confront David. And Nathan, I'm sure, spent a lot of time in prayer and thought, and like, how am I going to do this in a way that he'll listen? Because you ever notice when you love somebody, someone that you love, and you know they're going down a wrong road, it takes you a long time to get up the guts to actually confront them because you don't want them to get defensive. You don't want them to get mad. You want them to hear as someone who loves them. And so he thinks about it and he prays about it. And then this is what Nathan says in the story. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it and grew up with him and his children. He shared his food drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from talking, uh, from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man, and he prepared it for the one who had come to him. So Nathan's creating this very, very creative story. He's crafting it really well. And then it says, David burned with anger against this man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. David gets all fired up. He's like, how could anybody do that? That's horrible. And David's just like us, isn't he? I mean, I don't know about you, but sometimes I can be listening to a message from another speaker, and all of a sudden I can just be getting pumped up and like, yeah, Jennifer, you really need to hear this. You ever find yourself listening to a teaching or a message and you think, man, I'm so grateful to God that He is speaking to that person back there or that person over there or that person right there. You ever notice that your elbows are like the most used body part in a teaching sometimes? I mean, the person sitting beside you is like, whoa, man. That's what David does. And we all do that. We love to get self-righteous at times. And then comes one of the most courageous statements in all of Scripture. Remember, folks, David's still the king. He can wipe out anyone whenever he wants. And Nathan has the courage, with no hesitation, to go and to say, You are the man. This is your sin. This is your story. This is your heart. 
This is how you've fallen, David. This is the depths to which he would descend. You are the man. And then who knows for how long, but I bet there was this silence that just came within their conversation. And I bet that there was a voice in David's head that was telling him this. You know what? I can control this problem. I took care of Bathsheba. I took care of Uriah. I took care of Joab. I took care of the army. And this is just one man, one prophet, one little pipsqueak named Nathan. I can take care of him. And if I get rid of him, then it's all cleared up again. I'm home free. No one will ever know. And I can, you know, make it up. And I can be the good king again. But then there was another voice that was speaking to him. And that voice whispered to him and said, David, do you remember long, long ago when you were a shepherd boy and you were out in the middle of a field and lions and bears came up and I protected you? And then I bet another voice kind of whispered to him and said, David, David, do you remember when there was that big giant, nine feet tall, and you came to me and you said, by the power of God, I'll be able to fight this off. And I gave you the strength to do that. And then there was a voice that worshipped him and said, David, do you remember when you would sing and dance and love me in ways that you could not even imagine? And you had the fullness of God in your heart and you loved me with all things. Do you remember that, David? David, do you remember all the battles, all the wars where you went out before and I was there and we took Israel to the greatest point that it's ever known? And David stands at this crossroads and he has two places that he can turn. And then David turns to Nathan and he says, I've sinned against the Lord. I am the man. I'm the man in your story, Nathan. I'm the man. I'm the man who does not deserve to live. That's my sin. That's my story. I'm the man. And I tell all of you this morning, because some of you folks, you're at this crossroads. You can either choose to continue to deny your own fallenness and say, well, it's not that big a deal or it's not as bad as so-and-so, and you can keep slipping down that slippery slope of sin. Or you can honestly return back to God and you can say, I'm the man, I'm the woman, that's my story. Maybe you even remember great days of closeness with God when you walked and you got up in the morning and you read your Bible and you prayed and you sang to God or you just felt a peace that every time you kind of walked through life, you felt like God's presence was right there. 
But then something happened, and then you started drifting. Not a whole lot at first, but you've drifted more and more and more away. And you might still do the Sunday morning thing, but that God thing, the thing that's so close, the one who knows you best and loves you most, it's not what it used to be. And God's reaching down and He's saying, Turn back to me. Turn back to me. If you would, I'd like you to just take a couple of moments right now. Just between you and God, nobody else. Bow your heads, close your eyes, just get in your own place. And take a few moments and just confess to God any sin that is keeping you separated from Him. And I pray right now, Holy Spirit, that you would come in a powerful way. You would convict people of anything that separates them from God. And for some of you, this is a very, very important moment. Your thing right now may be just kind of small, but it's growing, or maybe it's really big and large right now. Maybe God's been trying to get through to you for quite a while. But for whatever reason, it just hasn't happened. God's waiting for you right now to come to Him with humility and brokenness and to say, All right, God, I'm the man. I'm the woman. I'm tired, God, of holding you at an arm's length. I'm tired of having to walk with that kind of darkness or brokenness or this cloud that just covers me. I want to come home. I want to come home. So you take some time right now just between you and God. Confess, I'm the man. I'm the woman. Talk to God right now. our brokenness and the struggles that we have with sin. We don't want to live in darkness. We don't want to have hearts that are cold and distant. We just want to live as your sons and your daughters. that you hear our confession and that you shed your mercy on us and that you flood us with your grace and that everyone would know that we are forgiven people
guys would, I, I want you to hear the rest of what Nathan finally said to David. It's on the side screens, but Nathan says this. He says, the Lord has taken away your sin. The Lord has taken away your sin. You don't have to carry it. You don't have to walk with it. It's taken away. And He's given you new forgiveness and the ability to live a new faith. This past week, my daughter Jordan came to uh, Crossroads. Um, She had a choice, either a milkshake or an ice cream sandwich. And she chose the milkshake. And my wife chose the ice cream sandwich. And later on in the night, Jordan saw this ice cream sandwich wrapper, and she's like, I want an ice cream sandwich. And my wife said, no, 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 you can't have an ice cream sandwich. You already chose a milkshake. So Jordan whined a little bit, and then she stopped, and then she kind of stomped up the stairs. She wasn't whining. She's brushing her teeth. And I walk in to see them brushing their teeth, and my youngest daughter, Shiloh, is right beside her, and Jordan has the toothbrush like a knife, like Freddy Cougar, going down the back of her head. Shiloh's head, that is. And I grabbed her little arm, and I said, Jordan, we don't do that. And I started dragging her to our room, and I was ready for the punishment. And we get there, and there's these big crocodile tears coming down. And she's got her mouth full of toothpaste, so she's got to spit it out. And so I get her to the sink, and she spits it out. And I looked at these tears. And discipline in our house is an important thing, and we're pretty strict when it comes to what they get away with. But every once in a while, we give them a grace And I got on my knees and I said, Jordan, I'm going to give you grace today. And I said, do you know what that means? She says, yeah, Dad, I don't deserve what I should get. I'm like, you're right. And then she looked up to me. thought that some of us might need to be encouraged to sing about that grace and sing about a faith that God can give to you no matter what. So if you'd stand, we're going to sing about a new faith so that you leave from this place today with a new faith in what God wants to do in your life. Yeah.
Have a great day.